Okay, well, welcome to Recipes for Success. Um, we have Nina Subramanian here who's going to speak to us about um, our about her career and her experiences as a woman leader in biotechnology. Um, let's do some introductions. I'm Annie DeGroote. I'm the CEO of EpiVax, and I am also uh, a professor at University of Georgia and leader of a couple of nonprofits that uh, we won't talk about today, but um, those are the, the three, three things that I do besides raise children, uh, hopefully successfully. <laughs> um, and we'll go over to Katie and then we'll go to Mina. Hi. Yes, um, so this is Katie Porter. Uh, I'm the business development manager at EpiVax. Uh, I've been uh, there for uh, almost six years now, and uh, and I'm a dog mom <laughs> and a daughter. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we're happy to be here and talk with Mina. And uh, I will turn it over to Mina for uh, her introduction. Thanks, Annie and Katie. So hi, everybody. Mina Subramaniam. Delighted to be participating in this podcast today. So I am currently a vice president in Takeda Pharmaceuticals in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And my role at Takeda is as a global program leader. And essentially what the global program leader does is uh, more of a strategic asset manager role. So I can say that I'm the CEO of assets, which is medicines that move from preclinical into clinical development with an eye on commercialization. So what I do is to really work across or with a cross-functional team of experts. And we put together a strategy based on how best to bring this asset, you know, on the science, based on the science, the unmet medical need, and really what we understand about a disease space. So take the asset through clinical development such that it can add value to patients. The focus here is really thinking about how do you bring uh, value to patients and physicians and their families? So, so that's my role at Takeda. I've been there for five years. I just marked my fifth year anniversary a couple of days ago. So I'm excited and I've been in this role. So initially I started off in the gastroenterology division and then I'm currently in the oncology division and I lead um, uh, programs in lung cancer, and also I lead a huge, exciting discovery platform, uh, which is looking at redirecting immunity. So that's one of the big focus areas for Takeda is how do you really activate the innate immune system, you know, and the adaptive immune system to really fight cancer. So I'm um, really working on a discovery platform there um, in trying to see if we can advance uh, compounds based on that platform into the clinic for solid tumors. Great. Exciting. It's got to be an exciting job, truly. Uh, we met when you were at Biogen. So that's right. I think that's when we first really, um, we might have met before that, but we really uh, tried to work together at that point in time. And uh, just to remind people what we're trying to do here with this podcast, uh, Recipes for Success is a podcast by women for women who are in the biotech space. And what we're trying to understand is how each of us has taken a path in our career, hopefully to success. That's the point, right? Obviously, we're speaking to a lot of successful women in this in this podcast, and we're um, interested in sharing some of those insights with other women who are still on the path. And so, we're really we have a focus on the people that we're speaking to, as well as the younger women, the next generation of leaders in this field, and we're very focused on how we can help how we can help each other succeed in this space. And I think that is something you have done really, really well. Um, we had you at the biotech, um, Women in Biotechnology meeting in New York City this year, and you really uh, laid out quite a lot of information that we thought we should share today on this podcast. But let's start with you. Let's talk about, you know, where you came from, where, where did you grow up? What, what did you, what were you thinking of doing in high school? Uh, what did you do in college, et cetera? So why don't you give us a little bit of your life path so people can understand where you came from? Uh, certainly. So I come from India. I come from a coastal city in India called Chennai. So grew up, um, you know, right on the Bay of Bengal. Um, I did um, all the way up to my master's in India. Um, so the one thing that defined me right as from, a, from childhood through schooling is my passion for science. My mother happened to be a chemist, 
So she was always mm-hmm. talking to us, you know, in very scientific terms. And I was this child who annoyed her all the time with questions, you know, why, why, why? That was, <laughs> that's how my childhood was defined, asking a lot of questions. And she was extremely patient with me. And the way schooling worked in India was once you hit the ninth grade, then you started making some sort of a commitment to certain um, areas that you wanted to focus on. So we had the science track or we had the commerce track in school. So we started specializing pretty early. And so I focused on the science track, um, biology, physics, uh, chemistry, math, um, you know, so that's where I was headed. And so when I graduated from um, high school, then I went into college and I, I was actually a botanist um, with a zoology and physics minor. And then from there on, I started sort of thinking about, you know, how do I extend my learning into something that is going to have a human touch to it? So I sort of, um, you know, considered going to medical school uh, for a little bit. And then I decided maybe I wanted to do more than that. I wanted to understand more mechanistically things and such beyond just treating with medicines that were already available. So I went into um, a school there uh, called the Postgraduate Institute of Medical Sciences, which offered a unique program in the sense it was in medical microbiology. So we took a lot of qualifying courses in the medical school and then be specialized in microbiology. So the goal there was to set you up um, to become an independent, you know, a lab head. So you could set up a microbiology laboratory and do diagnostics and things like that. But of course, through that, um, I did have an opportunity to do research and my focus was on tuberculosis and the resistance that was developing because it was quite endemic in um, India, tuberculosis. And um, so the resistance mechanisms was what I was uh, focused on studying. And one thing that struck me was how rapidly, even though there were some effective medicines, how rapidly patients were developing resistance to these medicines. And it really triggered my interest in understanding how do you know, people develop medicines? You know, how is that biology considered? How are targets selected? And how do we really um, address um, the body's reaction to it, right? So essentially the body is developing resistance. So how do resistance mechanisms uh, develop to these medicines? So I was very intrigued by it. And then we had a bunch of friends, like-minded friends, and we all decided if we really wanted to get deep in research, then um, our opportunities were elsewhere. And that's how I ended up coming to the United States. And I pursued a PhD in microbiology at um, uh, Miami University in Ohio, so it's a long story. It wasn't really easy to, you know, get parental permission to leave the country to come to the U.S. So I had to pick a little town uh, which they felt was safe for me to go to school <laughs> and such. But nevertheless, I have to say um, this um, university in Oxford, Ohio, it was a very thriving environment. Um, and I happened to do my Ph.D. thesis uh, with John Stevenson, who was really an expert in immunology. And that's where my passion for immunology grew because, uh, you know, trying to understand microbes, how they develop the infection aspects of it, and then how do we endogenously fight um, infection was a passion that he really created. He was a phenomenal professor and a great uh, mentor. Um, so, so that's my journey from India. So it was pretty much a single track, right? I was interested yeah. in biology and science all the time. And I started sort of, you know, delving deeper into what was my passion in biology. So I actually started off as a botanist in my undergraduate degree and then evolved into microbiology and then eventually into immunology, infection and immunity. Great. Was he a TB person or an immunologist when you... He was a hardcore immunologist and he was really looking at actually malnutrition and how it affects the immune system. Oh, wow. So there was really no connection to TB, but, um, you know, but eventually, um, you know, we found some connections. We started looking at bacterial infections and mechanisms of resistance in macrophages. So, hmm. uh, Yes, macrophages, a very important uh, member of the immune system. I was listening to a podcast today about COVID and macrophages and the inflammasome. I'm sure you know a lot about that. That's right. So, yeah, so that's exciting. So, so I agree with you about the small um, uh, research programs because you get a lot more attention. And it's pretty rare when you're in a big research program to have 
uh, significant interactions with a, a professor. So I was at Smith College, for example, and mm -hmm. um, I, I think that was very helpful. They didn't even have a graduate program, so we did graduate-type work as undergraduates. And that's a typical thing at Smith College. So, and also it's all female. So when you were uh, in Ohio, did you have other women in the laboratory? Did you have uh, friends who were there who were working alongside of you and having similar good experiences? So I had other lab mates who were women and we also had women professors in the department. So it was quite a nurturing environment from that perspective. And we had a great fellowship amongst the graduate students. So it was easy to settle in and also, you know, learn the ropes, quote unquote, regarding how research is conducted um, and learned a lot of, you know, fundamentals about being very analytical and critical in designing experiments and so on and so forth. So I think um, the environment was really amazing and the lab group was um, very good to partner. So we had a lot of individuals who would share information. I mean, we had always heard about competition in other laboratories and you know students not wanting to share information across and between labs and I did not fortunately experience any of it we really had good camaraderie Thanks. and um, it, so it was a wonderful experience as a PhD student yeah so usually after you do your PhD you go on to a postdoc and then um, and there's at the I don't know when you got your PhD when was it so I graduated in 1990 uh-huh, with your PhD in 1990. Yes. Right, so at the time, I don't think biotechnology was a career path that was being encouraged. Is that correct, Mina? That is correct. I mean, it was academia, academia, and more academia. So you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. So the path I chose was to do a postdoctoral fellowship, and I uh, secured a fellowship at Tufts uh, Medical School in the Department of Pathology under another amazing mentor, uh, Brigitte Huber, and she was focusing on superantigens and presentation, antigen presentation. So I, I had the fortune of really working with her and watching what it takes to be, you know, in the cutting edge of science, as well as a mom of three and, you know, trying mm -hmm. to write grants, run a laboratory and be there, you know, as an amazing scientist. So I think that was another very formative experience for me in learning and watching Brigitte that, you know, you can really be what you want to be if you kind of structure your life and understand mm -hmm. your priorities. And she was all about priorities, right? So um, she was uh, very inspirational from that perspective. So I'm really <laughs> grateful for that experience that I was able to have as well for three full years. Wow. And so that was a tough. And then yes. you went on from there to... To biotechnology or uh, so exactly so so this is where my you know my real career journey started right so when I was in Brigitte's laboratory of course I was thinking of the academic career track and um, you know looking at uh, writing grants and the challenges that were associated with it and I partnered on a number of grant um, um, applications with Bridget but it so happened that one day a recruiter reached out to me and they became aware of me because of some presentations I had made at the scientific congresses. And this was from mm -hmm. a company which was uh, called Ares Advanced Technology. And they happened to be part of the, what is now Merck Serono organization. Previously, they were just Serono. And they had this interferon beta product for multiple sclerosis, um, Rebif. And um, wow. they wanted somebody to come and build an immunology laboratory in their uh, Massachusetts offices. So they reached out to me and said, hey, will you be interested? And I had absolutely no clue about what a biotech company did at that time. So I did some quick homework and then I said, you know what, this is my best chance. It's an opportunistic um, moment. Uh, maybe I should take the plunge. Academia is always there. I said, okay, if I get bored with that and I don't like what happens in the company, I can always come back. Right. So I spoke to Bridget and she was very supportive. She said, you know what? A lot of the postdocs in my uh, laboratory have actually gone on to biotech companies and they're really doing very, very well. So it's a misconception huh. that you think that good science can happen only in, you know, academic universities. These days, biotechnology companies are really doing cutting edge science. So you should give it a chance. Right. And, um, you know, even as 
as a young person, I was always interested in building things. For me, the challenge was in really building something ground up, be it a research project or otherwise. So I decided to join uh, Merck Sorono. And the person who hired me there actually was a postdoc in Ethan Shivak's laboratory. So ah. I kind of had, you know, I was familiar with his publications and such. So we hit it off right away. And it was a wonderful, I spent five years there, I built a laboratory and we did a lot of target validation. So the way that company worked was they would in-license a lot of the uh, um, products or the targets that they were interested in from academic institutions. So they had a huge uh, collaboration, um, you know, with many universities. And um, so what we, I would do as the lab head was when a molecule, small amounts of it was sent from this um, academic institution, then we'll do some cellular work in vivo work in animals to see if this target is relevant, if this is a disease area of interest to it. And most of it was focused on autoimmunity because that's what um, um, Sorono was working on at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were able to you know, build the group up and um, uh, we did some interesting work there, but none of the targets that we worked on really made it into the pipeline. Uh, and my mm -hmm. goal was really to take medicines to humans, right? Because this is my passion from my uh, master's uh, time when I wanted to understand why people were developing resistance to medicine. So you had to really take a medicine first then to understand how people respond to okay. it. So I was getting a little itchy to, you know, <laughs> and I felt like I was still only close to the bench. I wasn't really seeing action in the clinic. No. And so the manager who hired me at Sorono then moved to Biogen and he actually moved into the development oh. organization. So as soon as he went there, he recruited me. He said, you know what, if I hire you, then I can take it easy and I can delegate all the work to you. And he was really good about it. So I built wow. a group up there. And, and so the rest is history. I stayed at Biogen for 19 years. Wow. Um, I had phenomenal opportunities to grow, build the organization, the translational sciences organization, which I headed. And um, so that's my short history before I got to Takeda. Yes, great. Wow. It's so exciting. Um, I mean, it's really very impressive what you've accomplished. And I, I am, you know, I think you have to be fearless as a woman in biotechnology and just kind of even taking on the challenge of setting up a laboratory in a, in a company that you had never worked in before. You didn't know the people who were working there and then making the jump over to another company where you stayed for a long time and contributed quite a bit to the development of drugs there. I mean, that's, that's right. the other thing. That's, right. uh, that's one thing I did want to point out is, so in my first job at uh, Sorono, it was actually a global experience because, you know, mm -hmm. the academic institutions that Sorono partnered with, they were in Israel, they were in France. So it gave me the opportunity to actually meet these investigators in person, work in their laboratories and to transition the knowledge as well as some of the production techniques for these molecules and such. So it gave me that global exposure. They had a lot of uh, staff also in Italy. So that was a wonderful experience. And the second thing is when I left Sorono, I was already an, a director and associate director, I forget now, but then I joined Biogen as a senior scientist and I went back to the bench. And the reason I'm bringing this up is my first job that I took was very opportunistic. But the second job, mm -hmm. the move to Biogen, I say, was very deliberate, you know, so I wasn't very concerned about stepping down in title because that yeah. was the opportunity I wanted. I wanted to learn about drug development. Mm -hmm. I felt right. like I had a reasonable handle on what it takes to do target validation, not discovery yeah. per se, but really validating targets. And how do you understand the relevance of what animal models you would really validate these in? But what I didn't have is that next phase of understanding what does it take to develop medicines clinically, right? So huh. I did take a step down in my title uh, because, and I call that as a very deliberate move. And this I found um, being quite important to mention to my mentees, because many a times when they come to me and talk to me, they're always talking about promotions, bigger titles, you know, more influence. And I always tell them, you have to really think about other things, right? What are you learning? What do you want to challenge yourself to yes. learn? Mm -hmm. And what is the impact you're going to have because of that learning? So I just wanted to mention that. Do you think that in a smaller company, you have that opportunity to kind of take 
different paths to uh, learn more things? Or do you think that that's a characteristic of a smaller company? Because I'm feeling like um, we've had some of the folks at the biotech meeting in New York talk about big companies and how things are a little bit more fractured and you don't really, you kind of get siloed into one group and you can only work with that group and there might be something really interesting happening over here, but you can't go over there and work on it because you're kind of not allowed to do that. But is that possible in a smaller company? So uh, the first thing is, indeed, it is easier in a smaller company to wear many hats. So you pretty much can be a postdoc and you can take on many responsibilities because the size of the company tends to be smaller. And if they are more like in a startup phase, obviously, you know, they're not going to have as many staff to take on. So you do get an opportunity to learn and stretch yourself in that situation. Whereas in larger organizations, they tend to be better staffed and they also seem to have more depth in terms of talent and more professionals who have, you know, like if you think about regulatory or if you think about safety, they have more professionals who are in that role. That said, though, I would never say can't be done, right? So if you choose to find a challenging opportunity in a larger organization, you have to speak up and seek out those opportunities. And if they Mm -hmm. see you as a talent that they're interested in retaining, they will absolutely accommodate that. So I certainly would not become, you know, a lackadaisical and thinking, oh, in a large organization, these things are not going to happen. And therefore, mm-hmm. I'll just do my job. You know, there is no such thing as doing your job because all organizations are looking for employees who are motivated, who want to really learn, because that's the way you keep yourself current, right? Even as you know, science is advancing so much, even if you mm-hmm. think that you're within a group. There are so many interfaces now that's coming up, say, for instance, digital interfaces. You're thinking about, you know, all kinds of other technologies that we are using. And even within science, I mean, it's like so complicated in terms of the modalities that we are developing drugs Mm -hmm. on. And so there is so much to learn that I don't think that, you know, you get boxed in. You really have to be externally facing, understand how the organization operates and seek out those opportunities. They are there to take, honestly. Did you, I'm just wondering, you, you're so, it sounds, you sound so confident about like how to deal with um, life at a company. Is this something you learned on the job or did you have a mentor who helped you understand what to do and how to approach work in a biotech company? So I have to say it's a bit of my personality. I, you know, mm-hmm. I have been a person who's never been afraid to fail, right? So I'm like, you know, once you fail, you can only go higher. So I'm always willing to it. take a challenge. <laughs> and then the second thing is, I'm always itching to learn. I get bored when I feel like I can do this job well, right? So I have that personality that I have to be constantly challenged. So I, I am looking for challenges. That's the second thing. Huh. And third thing is, I have been fortunate because people who have been my managers, who have become my mentors, understood that urge in me to constantly, you know, develop myself and I'm able to stretch myself. And they always told me, you have so much capacity, right? And that capacity is I'm willing to put in the hard work. I'm willing to put in extra time, whatever it takes, and I'm able to prioritize. And so I am asking, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm always successful, but I always ask. The most people can say is, no, it's not available at this time or, you know, this is not really convenient, but Mm -hmm. I ask. Mm -hmm. We have a motto at Epivax, which is if you don't ask, you don't get. Exactly. Right. So if you if you see something that you think would be a good idea, if you don't ask for it, then you may not ever get it. So I think you're absolutely right. I'm just wondering if um, on the way to your successful position that you have right now, have you experienced any barriers to success or any kind of uh, opportunities that you felt you missed due to whether it's gender or other reasons? Are there, was there a glass ceiling at any point? Um, did you have any of those experiences that you would like to share? If you don't want to, that's okay too. Uh, no, no, I mean, there are no secrets here. You know, obviously um, it has not been easy to just progress, right? You've had. I've had to prove myself time and again, constantly that I'm worthy of the positions that I have held. And I've also Mm -hmm. had to manage a lot of uh, people in my team 
who felt that I was really delivering on my promise as the functional line leader and as a mentor and as a sponsor, essentially, you know, helping them develop, right? So leadership takes on different roles as you grow, uh, you know, climb up the ladder. One is really showing your scientific competency in being able to do the job, in being able to, you know, think through the challenges, you know, risks, anticipate the risks and mitigate those risks. So that's on one front. The other front is really showing up as a leader and being there for your people, being the advocate for your people. So I have faced plenty of challenges, not from a gender perspective, but it has tested mm -hmm. me as a leader in terms of, you know, I've made mistakes, I've learned from my mistakes, and this is to do with people management, you know, it's to do with, um, you know, asking for resources and why we needed to do what we needed to do as a group. So sometimes I felt like I could have been a little bit more tactful or savvy in how I projected what my team needed to get done. But this is like survival of the fittest. You have to really be there. And what I did do was to really learn a lot from my peers. So I would watch and learn. I'm, I wasn't alone in this journey. I had a lot mm -hmm. of leaders within R&D who were facing similar issues. And I would really look at how did each one of them manage the situation. I built a relationship with them. I built my network with them. I would talk to them. And I would be very transparent, right? I would say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this particular aspect. How do you deal with it? And it was so refreshing mm -hmm. to see that they also had the same issue. So it was so nice to talk mm -hmm. about it and develop a common way in which we can really tackle the issues. So what, was, what helped me is not really, um, you know, um, sitting back and thinking about what am I going to do about this, but really facing those challenges head on which was not essentially gender-based, but it was more related to leadership and how do you really manage in an organization that has multiple leaders within R&D and there are so many focus areas. So why does the organization have to invest in you and your people? So that's what it boils mm -hmm. down to. And that came through really networking, watching others and learning from them too. Yeah, so... Um... It's interesting that you say that. And when you say you, you reached out, did you reach out? Like, did you have meetings where you could reach out? Or did you just email somebody or pick up the phone? I mean, I'm just trying to imagine how, especially obviously with COVID, it's a little bit harder. You just can't just bump into somebody, right? Because you yes. have to plan a meeting. But how did you do that? Because as a woman, sometimes we might be a little bit diluted in an organization. We may, there may be fewer women. Did you reach out to women? Did you reach out to men? Did you reach out to both? Right. So I did reach out to, you know, so it was not limited by gender. I reached out to leaders mm -hmm. in the organization. So first I would set it up as a, you know, one-on-one -on -one meeting, wanting to talk mm -hmm. about, you know, talent in my group, how are they planning to do things um, and such. And then once I broke the ice, having the conversation, then I would say that, you know, I have these uh, specific challenges. Can I consult with you on this? Um, I would like to understand if you're facing similar challenges. So the transparency helped. People were always willing to go above and beyond to meet with you when they understood that, you know, there was something specific you wanted to talk about and they also wanted to share their own experiences. So it would sometimes be over lunch. It would be for coffee. You know, it may be a quick conversation, but I would make the time for others as much as they made time for me. And it's, it's really, huh. it's a mutual thing, right? You cannot do this one-off. It has to be something that you maintain on a rolling basis that yeah. you carve out some time from your day um, as much as you sure. do for your work and your people, you have to do it for yourself. I see it as my time because this is time for me to grow and develop and understand how to do things. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. So in, in a sense, sometimes a smaller company is not so helpful because you may not have that many people that you can reach out to that have experiences that they can share with you. I'm thinking about that too. Um, there but if I may interrupt, that, Annie, if I may interrupt, yeah. you know, the size of the organization should not matter because the way I look at it is it's your network, right? So this is why I use the word repeatedly externally facing. So I actually used a lot of resources from the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists, right? This is an organization where you have really a lot of industry leaders who come there to discuss science, to share the strategies in drug development and such, but they're also people. 
you know, they're managing groups, they're facing the same challenges with their management about getting resources, you know, making certain aspects of the science stick. Like, you know, when we started the immunogenicity assessments, there was a lot of hue and cry about why are we getting so deep into, you know, understanding immunogenicity? Does it really have clinical impact? Should we be going down this path? How should we resource it? So strategizing with colleagues and peers outside the organization also helps. So you don't have to think that I have a small organization. Do I have the resources there? Yeah. There are so many external resources that you can reach out to. Exactly. So that's actually a really good point. I think for younger women that it is worth the effort to go participate in these conferences and get a network of people. I mean, we, we know a lot of people in the immunogenicity field, that's what we do. But I think um, just going to the events and also participating in some of the social events, such as the women's groups at, uh, you know, you don't always hit it off. I think uh, Katie and I went to a bio women's group and it was maybe not so friendly, but I think, I think that, you know, we can't, we, we also went to the Gordon conference and talked to women there about um, mm -hmm. their experiences. But I think it's, it's a good, it's important to take the opportunity to reach out to people in the settings where we have access to other people who are having similar experiences. I think that's a really good point. And you, you actually mentioned AAPS, but also there's an organization called WEFT that you're affiliated with. Do you want to yes. talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, you know, once again, my affiliation to West started with a peer of mine from Biogen. So she joined West and she joined the board of West and she was thinking, hey, who is the other person whom I can recruit to, you know, join West and help us really move this organization to that next level? And she reached out to me. So West is, um, the acronym stands for Women in Enterprise of Science and Technology. It's a Boston-based organization but thanks to COVID, now we have really national outreach since most of our programming has been happening on uh, Zoom. But essentially the focus of West and what really drew me to West is, it is focused on, uh, it's a nonprofit and it's really focusing on helping women develop their business acumen and their leadership skills as well as professional networks. So early on the founders of West, they realized that you know, one of the things that's holding women back from assuming leadership roles is that lack of network and really not understanding you know, what is it that they need to become a leader. Because you know, as often talked about, women feel like they have to really check 100% of those boxes in that job description. Yeah. But essentially what this community is trying to educate women about is, what is leadership and what acumen do you need to become a leader? And so this really the focus of West is to build a pipeline of women leaders so that we can improve the gender balance at all levels. And we start working actually with women who are very early in their career. So we're not looking for the top dogs, right? However, the leaders in the biotech industry have been very generous with their time that they mm -hmm. participate in these meetings and conversations and share their journey, their career journey with the young women so they can see that, you know, people have taken so many different roads to getting where they are and they're continuing to move, you know, that uh, goalpost, right? So they're broken the yeah. glass ceiling and they're aiming higher. So That's great. So we should ask you if you, um, on, as an aside, if you think of women that you think would be good for this podcast, I think uh, this is a, one way of getting the word out is to have people have the information available online so you can listen to Mina Supermani and talk about how she built her career but you know and, or other people so let's you know definitely keep that in mind and the AAPS so we'll put uh, links into the what they call the show notes for this episode on West uh, so people can look into West but AAPS if you want to say what the abbreviation stands for I know what it stands for of course but um, we'll also, and do you want to mention any groups within AAPS that you think would be helpful for younger women to join? Absolutely. So the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists also has a, a group that is focused on women development, right? So they have a, a group that women in pharmaceutical sciences, and they organize a lot of um, lectures and discussion forums talking about, um, you know, what we should focus on from a career growth perspective, what are the opportunities that are available there, and what does it uh, take to be a leader, 
right? How do mm -hmm. you find a mentor? What do you? What is the difference between a mentor and a sponsor? And how do you show up as a mentee? How do you take advantage, you know, or make full use of these relationships? So they have a lot of great programming that happens at their conferences, but also they have monthly meetings and forums where they uh, talk to individuals. So, you know, what is important is for people to really, like you said, Anne, to find a community where they feel comfortable. There are so many out there that they can reach out to, but what's important is to find the community and invest the time. It doesn't help yeah, anybody to just going right. from one group to another, mm -hmm. and then you feel like right. you're not forming any deep connections, right? right? You have to really stay focused and build those deep connections and, uh, you know, such that you're learning from them. Mm. I agree. Well, you know, I think when we went to bio, we didn't try to dig too deep there, right, Katie? But uh, we'll try again this year and see if there's a connection that we can create, right? There's a women in bio uh, group at, at bio. So we go to bio every year as well. Yeah, um, there was just an event um, actually at the AAPS uh, NBC National Biotechnology Conference. Uh, they did have a wonderful women's event. So, uh, so they are doing it right. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that they have a women's group. Um, and Mina, one thing that I, I you've mentioned a number of times uh, and it sort of ties into that is prioritization. And it sounds like when you become part of these women's groups or, you know, and you have to invest the time, you have to make it a priority. And I, I thought that that was very um, interesting and in, in talking about prioritizing time for yourself That's in right. order to develop and all of that kind of, all of that rolls together, I think, right? Would you it say? rolls together. You know, this is what I repeatedly hear from individuals. They say, how do you make time for all of this, right? So I tell them, if I can make time to sleep and to eat, I do want to make time to network, you know, so it all depends on what is important to you. Yeah. You know, do you draw energy from these events or not? Are, you know, if you are shying away from them, if you don't want to be with a group of people, you can choose to form a smaller unit of individuals, but it's important to have those conversations. Mm. You know, otherwise you feel isolated. You feel like I don't get the information I need. Unless you're participating in something that's happening at your organization. Organizations have a lot of employee resource groups, mm -hmm. which you can be part of, but everything may, takes an effort. So for me, really, when you think about your prioritization list, if you are serious about it, then this sort of purposeful networking should be on that. It doesn't have to be every day, yeah. but you know, it has to happen at some frequency that even if it's not a long conversation, dropping a note to say, hey, how is it going? Yeah. How are you doing? That's all it takes. Mm -hmm. And then some people mm -hmm. will re reply back to you with a longer message about what's happening in their life. Somebody will say, hey, I took your advice. Actually, one of the most recent emails that I received was from an individual who said, I was your motivation to change jobs. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I hope it's a good thing. And they said, it's an amazing thing because right. I heard you about, you know, what the motivation, the impact factor, and what is it? And I started self-reflecting on what I wanted to do. And I'm actually now in a new role and I'm so happy. And I wanted to let you know that. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, so I was just sending a note to say, how is it going? You know, and I got this whole thing back about how happy they are and how grateful they were for the advice that I gave them. So I that's think great. this is where I think about priorities, you know, and Annie had talked about this when we started the conversation about how things change in your life, right? So of course, you know, from being a single person to getting married, having a child, and then having family responsibilities, I've had to actually take some conscious decision about things I would do and I would not do, mm -hmm. right? There have mm -hmm. been events at work that I have not been able to attend because I had childcare responsibilities. There were things that, you know, work that I couldn't do with my friends because I had to take my um, parents-in-law to medical appointments. But these are things I did not feel like it was taking me away, but rather I think all of these responsibilities have enriched my life. You know, that's the way I look at it is you understand that there's a time and place to do things. And then now I'm in a different place in life, right? When I'm picking and choosing what about things that I want to get involved in? I want to get involved in a lot more not-for-profit not things where I can play a leadership role and bring connections to them. And, you know, the often used word is paying it forward. But regardless, you know, for me, it's really appreciating what I have and seeing part of my, you know, my skills 
people feel like it's valuable to them. That's that's awesome. And it's and it's and I'm sure it's so rewarding for you. That email was so rewarding for you to receive, right? That's Indeed. Great. Absolutely. Yes. Can you talk a little bit? Are there two things I wanted to ask you? One is um, how, how do you build a vision of where you're going in the future? And I think that it's having that vision. You were just talking about the person that you spoke to and, and that person hadn't really imagined being someplace else. So you have to have that vision in order to move. And then the other part that this part of that is the phases of life. So how do you plan for those phases? We've talked about this before, but I think it's such an important topic that we should really talk about it now. Right. So the vision actually is something that develops and evolves with your exposure to things. And this is why I think it's important for people to really participate and learn from others. Because my vision about who I want to be and who I want to become, it's not something that I knew at the start of this career, right? But I watched and learned from others. And I've, I, you know, once I experience something, unless it brings me joy, I move away from it, right? I move on from it and I find other things to do. So there is hit or misses in what you think is going to be good for you. But at some time point, you really need to know, you know, I need to pivot from this and go on to something else that I'm going to enjoy more. So for instance, when my management responsibilities became so much that I started missing the science, I said, you know what? I want to do more of the science and the strategy you know, and less of people management. And I chose a role that would give me that. So one thing is to be true to yourself and acknowledge, you know, what is it that makes me happy? So don't do it for somebody else. Do it for yourself, be it a title or a role, you know, just make sure that this is what you want to do and be happy in that role. And this goes back to also life's responsibilities. You cannot be everything to everybody at any given time. Right. So you have to tell yourself, you know, at this stage of life, what are my priorities? What can I truly accomplish? You know, it may be that you may not be able to get to that next level at work because you cannot put in that 48 hours that is expected of it. Right. So it should not be that way. You know, you should have that flexibility to still go above and beyond when you're able to. But there is also an acceptance from your end that you know, these are the things that I want to focus on at whatever stage in life and tailor it to that because it's all about taking charge, right? Somebody else cannot do it for you. You have to really define what you want it to be. And I may not know it now. I really don't know what the future holds for me. And I like to let you know, my experiences guide me there. So I'm not a priori plotting. I know things that I don't want to do. I'm very certain about because I've experienced them or I've seen others go through it. I'm like, uh-uh, not for me, right? <laughs> but there are things that I may, you know, I'm very open to experiencing and I'm just waiting for the chance and opportunity. Wonderful. So you had talked about uh, helping your mentees figure out what, what to do at what point in their life and what to expect and to plan for the future. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's, such an important concept. Right. So um, I mentor people in uh, different stages of their career. So the first thing I advise them is to really set their mind around how can I help them? What are they expecting of this relationship? Right. That's the first step. And, and the way I do it is really not to tell them what to do, but I share my experiences with them and tell them, you know, or ask them rather, not tell them, ask them you know, what is it that they're looking to do in that particular phase of their life, right? Is it that they're looking for a different experience and I guide them towards how to find that different experience within their organization, how to speak to their managers to get that different experience? Or is it that they feel like they're getting passed over for a promotion, right? Then I encourage them to really write down what their strengths are and what is not apparent to their manager about them already performing at that level so it's really guiding them towards their goal. I hate to put ideas in anybody's head, but the way I kind of expose them is to really share my experiences or I encourage them to come to an event that West is hosting where you have you know, a, a leader um, who's sharing their career journey in, you know, at breakfast or lunch. And I tell them, listen to what their journey looked like right? Do you see any similarities? Do you find any of this interesting to you? 
can I put you in touch with somebody else to talk to? So I never limit my mentees, um, you know, from interacting with one or two people. I actually introduce them to a lot of people. And I find that they kind of, you know, somebody else's experience may resonate better with them than my own. But that's my job. Like, you know, when I take the role of a mentor, my job is to really expose them to many things so that they can think about what works well for them. What, if, what about creating time for having kids and for elder parents, like my mom, who's 92 right now? But have you, do you talk to your mentees about planning that out? I do. Like In fact, you know, from the cultural background that I come from, family comes first. So for me, I have always prioritized that. I actually tell them funny stories about, you know, taking my daughter to work and, you know, giving her some projects to do while I was finishing up my experiment. So really, there were no walls for me between work and home. I treated them as a platform and I had managers whom I would tell them, hey, listen, my daughter's having her first show today or a recital. I have to attend that, but then I know we have this deadline and I'll make sure that I deliver on it. So this is where, um, you know, really managing your workday becomes very important and having that, um, the ability to really communicate up, you know, managing up and managing sideways is very, very important. So managing up and being open with your manager, setting those expectations about, you know, what your work schedule is and what you can accommodate and what you need to take care of, because, individuals like kids or elders really don't have other places to go to. They are dependent on us. So we have to make the time and more and more workplaces appreciate and understand that, right? And, but the thing is, it's for employees to really be, um, you know, uh, transparent about it and share what is going on with their lives, with their managers, so that they can get those accommodations. Great, that's really great. Um... I want, I think that those are the things that I wanted to talk about. So I, oh, the importance of women's friends. That's another um, topic that I thought would be worth addressing. And, you know, outside of work, I think we all have uh, small networks of, well, even within biotechnology, I think that some of us hang out together at conferences and we like to see each other. But I think that those those, the human contact outside of science is also super important. And I don't know if you wanted to comment on that at all in your life. How have you handled that? Very, very important because, you know, I'm a multidimensional person. I have so many interests. And one of my big passion is I'm a performing artist. So I do a classical Indian dance. So I, I have a group of friends whom I uh, dance with. We do productions together. We do yoga together. So, you know, that is, I mean, they're all, you know, some of them are scientists, some of them are techies. Uh, <laughs> we do talk a little bit about work, but it's very much less about work, but more about the art world. And we're actually making a trip to New York to the Metropolitan Museum uh, in June, just the girls to really, you know, focus on some things of interest to us. And it is such an enriching, you know, sort of um, meet up with them. Every time I have a meeting with them or we do yoga together, it's so much fun. <laughs> right. And that relieves the stress, the work stresses. So I think having cliques of people who mean different things to you. I have a whole bunch of friends whom I'm engaged with in a nonprofit and we actually put galas together. We organize, you know, things together and the focus, you know, sometimes is on how do you bring um, medical treatment to rural villages? How do you take education to children in rural areas? We are talking about different things, but that's another different dimension and, and my brain, I'm using a different part of my brain, creative aspects of it in a different way for those interactions. So I think it is very important for us, you know, to really have this sort of um, perspective, right? And learn from all of these right. experiences. So, so for younger women, I think that it's, it's good to have outside interests and not just be totally science and biotechnology focused and uh, paper focused and project focused. It's good to have those outlets and uh, whether it's dance or music or uh, performance or art uh, or nonprofit, those are all great activities to have outside. And you can also create a, a network of support that's not necessarily 
uh, you know, you might have to explain how biotechnology works to them and how your management, you know, structure works to them, but they'll still listen to you when you want to talk to them about something that's bothering you, right? And sometimes absolutely, it's, it's absolutely. You know, with COVID, there have been so many questions that people have asked for of me about how to manage COVID. They ask me about drug prices. What does it take to develop medicines? I mean, we can be ambassadors to the pharmaceutical and the biotechnology field. It's also important for us to understand the perception people have about our industry, right? What bothers them? What don't they understand about the process? You know, they fear over vaccinations. So as I said, the more you interact, the more you learn, you know, beliefs that people hold, your own beliefs, you know, and how do you really change them? But, you know, I did mention my engagement with so many different frontiers, but I really didn't have, you know, as much time for each one of them during different phases of my life. I do want to tell people that, right, when you get engaged, you don't have to feel like it has to be a deep engagement all the time. Like with West as this organization, we have a bunch of volunteers who are able to give a few hours a month, but, you know, they take away what they can from that interaction but later on, some of these volunteers have actually joined the board and they're board members now, right? Because they're able to give more time in a different phase of their life. So all I would say is think about your life from multiple dimensions and try to keep in touch. You don't have to feel like you have to go deep all the time, but it's good to be in touch and become aware because for me, those are the exposures that help me learn. Wow, that's great. That's really great. great. Hey, so much. You, we're, getting, we're, we're at the top of the hour. I yeah. can't believe it. Uh, <laughs> do, do you have questions, Katie, that you wanted to ask before we wrap it up? No, I think um, I think just some key points that um, I, I, I took away is prioritization and reprioritization. But I think understanding priorities was a is a huge uh, is a huge thing. And, and you really got that point across. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. Listen, it's been really a pleasure. And what I do want to emphasize is beyond prioritization, really remain externally focused, mm -hmm. right? And, and reach out and ask for help. You know, there, there are so many resources that are available. All one person has to do is to really maybe point you in the right direction. And you may just find that, you know, that's information enough for you. But do ask because people cannot mind read. And unless you articulate what you're looking for, you know, nobody will know that you were looking to do this or that. So that's what I would tell people is um, there are so many opportunities and options available. So step up and reach out and ask for help. Great. Step up and reach out. Yes. <laughs> if, if you don't ask, you don't get. So <laughs> those that's are the right. messages that carry away today. Thank you, Mina. It's really very wonderful to speak with you. And we'll put links in the uh, show notes for people to learn more about the AAPS organization and WEST, which is Women Entrepreneurship in STEM. Correct? STEM and technology. Yes. Very good. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you both so very much. Yeah, thank you so much for your time tonight. And uh, good luck with uh, all those exciting projects at Takeda. It sounds fabulous. And uh, we'll talk the next time we have a group podcast, we'll see if we can get you involved in that as well. Because we do the group as well. We have wine and eat and cook food. <laughs> and, and, uh, talk that about sounds that. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.